to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Melissa Eden, who is currently a technical lead of quality at Unity Technologies in Austin, Texas. Melissa Eden, welcome to Maintainable. Well, thank you for having me. As a technical lead of quality, can you describe how your role fits into a typical software delivery process? Well, I work with a lot of the teams to talk about how to better put out quality software. So it's a day-to-day process of just checking in with folks, making sure there's a lot of discussion around like what's needed for testing, and then seeing who's available to do what. So it's not necessarily the testers always doing the job. It's everybody on the team contributing to making quality software. So if we come up with an idea about how to test a particular piece of the software or the service or something, we're deciding on a day-to-day basis, like who would be best to do that? Who, you know, if the devs need to write something, if we need to pair together, if we need to have me go talk to somebody over in another office, like, so all of those coordinating things, I do a lot of that. And I also do hands-on testing for several different teams here in the office too. Nice. And so you're working at Unity, correct? Correct. And what do they do there, just for those that might not know? (laughs) So Unity is a really popular 3D gaming engine. And what it lets users do is build mobile or platform games or PC or Mac or whatever. It's really cool, really complicated. And a lot of people refer to it as its own language. So it's its own development language to a certain extent. My comparison for folks out there would be like kind of like a souped up version of IntelliJ for the game world. So, yeah. Interesting. And how, did, how long have you been there? And I'm assuming you had a background in working in quality assurance and testing teams prior to that. How was that? Did you feel like it was a big shift from the type of work that you've been doing before, given the type of products that people can make with that? Or is it actually very similar types of patterns that you're able to follow? So yes and no. Like I feel like the mindset and the techniques and the processes that I brought to the job were fairly similar. How I applied them were really different. Unity is a lot of development for developers. So you really have to kind of get into the weeds. It's a lot of services, a lot of backend functionality, scripted APIs, which is a whole other, like you can understand like web APIs. Most of my career has been web applications and some mobile application development. So diving into a tool that is basically like providing a foundational language for what people are building things with, that's like a completely different space. So I've been at Unity for the last nine months or so, nine, 10 months, and it's a challenge and it's a challenge that I've welcomed and I really, really enjoy because it's a whole different headspace from just building something for someone to use on the internet building something for somebody to use to build something else is like a whole like meta level of things happening. So testing that you have to take into consideration a lot of things that you might not based on your typical user, because a lot of the users we have is it's a wide range of, and some of this is the same as uh, web development. You're going to have beginners and you're going to have more power users. But the other thing is, is that because most of the folks engaging are all levels, you have to be able to maintain a quality and a usability across like 
the whole space spectrum of users. So somebody who's a beginner should be able to come in and do something really simple fairly quickly. And somebody who's a, a power user or, you know, a really advanced game developer should be able to access like APIs and services to build out a more complex game and do amazing things with Unity because we have such an open, flexible platform. So all of that plays into like how we test and how we approach things. Every day I'm, I'm constantly learning something. I, I don't think there's a day that's gone by yet that I'm like, oh, okay, that's just one more thing I learned today, which is awesome. That's great. So like, I'm going to switch gears just for a little bit and talk about, so I mean, you joined this position and I would assume a lot of times you've joined different organizations. You've come into a, an environment where there is probably some existing software that was already in production and had a number of users and you came in to help improve the overall quality of, of their customer's experience or, or the, of the software as, as a whole. Do you have any good stories about how you've come in and where like they really needed that and how you were able to kind of come in and help kind of navigate a path forward for like seeing some good progress on making things more maintainable long term? It's never a one person job. So every project or job I've had, there is that little bit of misconception. Either testers are like, you know, people pressing buttons and maybe we don't really need them or they're just like these superhero entities that come in and save the day and make sure that everything is just glorious and gold and every the day will be great and give me a cape and yeah, <laughs> fly in and fix it. The reality is, is it's somewhere between those two. What I like to consider my role is, is enabling other folks to improve the quality of software. So it's somewhere between the two of like the superhero and the pressing buttons kind of mentality that I think people sometimes think testers have. So it's it's more really about coming in and joining a team and, and helping that team improve the quality of their software. So whatever I can do to help improve that quality, it's not going to be just my effort alone. It's going to be the entire team's effort because I am i can't write all the code by myself. I can't put out the software by myself. I can't build pipelines by myself. You know, there's some people that can, and that's amazing. That's great. But I'm a person that, that's going to come in and, and be like, okay, so how could we look at this differently to make things better, more efficient, more usable, accessible, whatever, you know, the guidelines and processes and whatever we actually need, what are our goals? So I'm constantly assessing like the big picture and then applying it to the smaller, more granular picture that is different features and things that we have to put out and make sure they're available for our users. What types of tools does someone in like your role typically use to help ensure the quality of your software projects? Slack. I'm not even kidding. Slack, Zoom, you would be surprised at how many things actually get fixed because you catch them early enough because you have a conversation with someone. So I'm a big proponent of making sure you are in meetings, you're in front of any kind of planning, you're talking with your developers and your project managers and your UX folks and any other testers that need to be involved. And you're constantly making connections with those people to try to figure out the state of things and figure out where your project fits in that state of things. Because usually you're on a project that's a small piece of a much larger application or as with Unity, it's like literally a global application. It's built in eight different offices or something around the world. So 
having that communication, staying open to having that communication with people, developing a network of folks where you can actually communicate and talk with them about issues you're having or issues they're having. They feel like they can reach out and talk with you. This is how quality gets built in from the beginning. Other tools that help with that, you know, Jira, stuff like that, you know, email. I can't say enough about communication tools and just like being really good about using those communication tools to the best of their abilities of what they have to offer you and leveraging them on a regular basis. Even in the office, the typical water cooler talk, like people talk about sitting in a a break room or something and talking. I get a lot of information from just, you know, somebody say, oh, well, I'm having this meeting about such and such. And I'm like, oh, hey, can you invite me to that? Because it sounds important. I think I should be there. And they'll be like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'll get invited to meeting. It turns out it was totally the right call. I'm very pushy might not be the exact right word, but yeah, I will put myself in a position where I can go to a meeting or make sure I get invited to a meeting or at least told about the meeting so that I can either gather information or understand what that process is or understand how people are putting things together. I think that's within the first three to six months of joining any company, any project, that's the most important thing you could do as a tester is just that knowledge and information gathering. And then once you get that established, then you can start looking at like the bigger tools or things that people are using to actually test the software it really isn't about the tools. If you're focusing on the tools, if you're focusing on like Selenium or WebDriver or, or automation from the get-go, then you're missing the point of how to get quality in because quality is actually a people problem. It's not a, it's not a tool problem. It's not a code problem necessarily. It's often misunderstandings and miscommunication that need to be corrected early on. And the faster and quicker you can get those corrections in, the less it's going to cost you on the other side. The less time I have to spend sitting with a computer actually physically testing something because I've been with it every step of the way. I know exactly what it looks like when it gets handed off to me. If I can get to that point and I've been to that point on some projects, it's amazing feeling because then I go, I know what this looks like. So now I can go into the weeds or I can really pick it apart and see if there's anything we actually missed that we need to really look at. A lot of times testers aren't able to do that because they're trapped in focusing on functionality and getting it functionally right because they aren't there in the beginning to say, hey, should we really be doing this? Does this make sense? Why are we taking this direction with it? Or like, hey, I know this other team that's working on the exact same idea. Maybe we should partner with them. If you have that knowledge, getting that knowledge is going to be half your job. And then the other half of your job is trying to make sure the knowledge you got is actually being implemented. As long as you're doing that, that's where you're going to fix like 85% of your problems. And then you'll just see defects melt away and technical debt sort of melt away because it having those conversations puts those things out on front street. People see that on a regular basis. My job is to make sure that those things are visible. And that's the other big thing that a tester can do is really come in and make things visible. Problems processes, whatever it is, like, hey, I'm having this issue. What's going on here? Oh, well, that's, you know, we've dealt with that for a while. Well, why are you still dealing with it? Let's get it fixed. Like what's holding us from getting us fixed? And then raising that blocker to the next person or the persons that can help get that fixed is, I feel like that's my job. And if someone, if a developer is being blocked, if another tester is being blocked, if I'm being blocked, making those things visible, making a progress visible, making 
how testing gets done very visible. Those things, visibility and communication are probably the two biggest tools and research, yeah, three. So those three things are probably like the arsenal of testing in my consideration. Like I have never ever said that a tool will solve my problem before going and having a conversation with somebody about like this and what about this and have we thought about this and and then if that all shakes out, then it's like, okay, what tool could we use to make this even better? So I'm, I'm super passionate about having those conversations and talking with people because I feel like I have been the most successful at getting problems solved because I'm having those conversations, not because I've sat at a computer pressing buttons. So, you know, I, and I do find things that way, but it's not, I think that's like the last part of my job. That's the least interesting part of my job. So if I can solve the problems before I start pressing buttons... That's where I want to be. What sort of advice would you give to developers out there that are maybe working in a small team where they don't have access to someone like you, but maybe their team is starting to consider the idea of bringing in like a role like this into the organization? Because historically, all their testing has been kind of manual click testing by some people, maybe some of the people on the team, whether that be the developers themselves or other stakeholders. And they're like, okay, we're growing. Maybe we need to formalize and, and come some more formalized structure for this and have people that are actually maybe know a little bit more and have some more best practices on how to manage this type of work versus just like give me input of like feature requests. I go and build it and now I'm going to go make sure it works or sending it back and hoping that the person that requested it, it works for them in the way that they thought it would. What sort of advice would you give them on how to like start thinking about how to make space in their team for that type of role in, in the organization? I would really think about like depending where and what the team is doing do you just want to add somebody to check you can do that and hire people on a project by project basis or you can bring someone on full time and what is that person going to enable for your team are they are they bringing in coaching are they going to coach the rest of the team into quality practices that'll help make sure that folks are writing unit tests and integration tests helping decide on technologies that are easier to test and more testable and more usable if that's the focus then that kind of person is who you're going to look for and then if those people also come with skill sets that help with automation or help get things started in that direction. If you're looking at automation and bringing someone on just to do automation, I think you also need to think about the longevity of that role. Is that person then going to help with automation and then later become a developer? You know, are they a tester and they're going to do automation and they're specifically focused on the automation? And then I would really question about what are you getting out of that what value do you want that person to provide and what value do you want them to provide to the team as a whole? It's not an easy answer, unfortunately. It's like, oh, you know, I'd love to say like, everybody should have a tester on their team. I think it's on a case by case basis. I think some testers on some teams are are really required and they get a lot of stuff done that people don't really see. And it's a lot of glue work. And if they understand that, if the team understands that, then they'll find that role really super valuable. If the team doesn't understand that, you know, that communication and testing process and testing mindset, then it's going to be a little bit harder for them to see the value of having a person on their team. My suggestion, if you're starting off, you've never had anybody on your team, I would almost start with a consultant 
role somehow to see if they could come in and kind of get a definition of what you need as a tester. Like, what is a tester? What kind of tester do you need? Do you need somebody that's got more broad skills? Do you need somebody that is going to coach people? Do you need somebody that has a lot of automation experience or performance or load testing experience? Those are all separate people. And you can find any of those people If you're trying to do, what do we need? Okay, well then I would hire somebody that would be like, hey, come in and consult for like a week or two and give us a profile. Give us an understanding of what you think we need as a tester. And the answer might be, maybe you just need somebody to spot check you or circulate between the teams and be like, hey, have you done this? Have you thought about this? No, yes, maybe we should implement that. And then that would be sort of a quality coach role. Those roles are actually becoming really popular because a lot of teams have moved to doing most of the functional testing themselves. And so when you are doing most of the functional testing, being a QA, I think one of the things we really start to have to think about and coming up in the role as I did, I know one of the things I actually talk a lot at conferences about is career development. And I think one of the things that is kind of a disservice businesses do is they'll hire a tester, but they really don't develop a path for them. It's like, what do you want? And that's what I'm talking about. It's like, what value do you want from that role? And then what do you want that role to grow into? So if they start off as a manual tester, but then you get to the point where you, well, we need somebody with automation, but you're not willing to train that person. That's a problem. If you bring someone in as a junior dev, but make them do a whole bunch of testing, you're either going to lose them or you're going to convert them to a dev. And then you're back to not having a tester really look at the roles, really look at like what your progression is. And then I coach testers into thinking about how they're going to adapt to the new paradigm, which is DevOps and CICD and continual delivery. Just seems like, you know, continuous everything nowadays, you know, machine learning, AI, neural networks, all of these things are going all of the time. So how as a tester, am I going to adapt that? Well, biggest way you could do that is by looking at specialization. People need people that know how to test for accessibility. Accessibility is a huge issue, literally a litigation issue for some people in some businesses. If they don't meet certain standards, they could be sued for not being accessible enough for people. So being an accessibility tester is a whole role in and of itself. Performance and load testing, a whole role in and of itself. So I am one of those folks that's like, hey, get the foundations, understand some basics, and then start looking at you know what you could specialize in. You could specialize in data, testing data, quality data testing. I love that area myself. I dabble in it quite a bit continually fascinated about how data works in systems. So one of the things I do is I'll go off and read stuff about machine learning and data analytics and things like that. And I can't say enough about making a plan of that nature for yourself. Be very proactive about, okay, I'm in testing. I'm going to get a CS degree or I'm in testing. I already have this other degree. Where do I want to go? Do I want to go into project management? Do I want to learn more about code development? Do I want to specialize in usability? That's a whole nother role. You can actually do UAT and usability with customers. So that's a whole other specialization that you can get into. And I think more and more we're going to see people specialize and move away from like what's considered traditional or functional testing into these specialty roles that are going to A, be a lot more interesting than just pressing buttons on a computer. And B, they're going to give you a lot better salary than just being a manual or an automation tester even. 
I strongly encourage people to start looking how they can branch out and how they can adapt. So it's all kind of in there. Like I think companies need to really think about what they're doing with that role. And then I think people really need to think about what they're doing with that role. <laughs> it's a complex thing though. But good question. I love that question. What do you say to those who speak about within software development teams about working with non-technical people? And I'm kind of air quoting non-technical people when they're collaborating together. And like those people over there, and then we're over here in the technical world and they're in the non-technical world for lack of maybe a better term. I hate even hearing it makes me like, like I get really a little bit ragey about it because I don't think people working in technology are non-technical. I don't know who people are calling non-technical these days, but I know a lot of testers call themselves non-technical. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's bullshit. I think it's a bunch of crap because oftentimes you bring skill sets and knowledge to that role that you've been through schooling, you've got degrees, you've learned about technology in a certain way to be able to apply that knowledge to a technical aspect of whatever that is. And it's not non-technical. That's not trivial information. People that think like customer service folks are non-technical is kind of crazy too. And the funny part is my career started out in customer service. Nowhere in any point in time was I ever referred to as non-technical as a customer service agent because I was constantly helping people on the phones with software problems and computer problems. Like I had to understand their computer OS that they were working on and the software that I was working with them with. So like if they call me up and they're working on a eMac and I'm like, uh, okay. So then I have to think about how our software interacts with that particular OS. And then I have to figure it out. That's technical knowledge. The funny part was, is I was never considered non-technical until I moved into a tester role until somebody told me that to my face. And I was just like, wait, what? Like, how? I, no. I am technical. You can't call me non-technical. I have worked in technology or worked with technology for at least a certain number of years by that point in time. So I just refuted that fact. Now, what people get confused, oftentimes I feel like the argument turns out it's not non-technical. It's actually non-coders. Coders versus non-coders. Non-coding doesn't mean they're not technical. So then you end up with this weird gatekeeping of, oh, you don't know code, so you're non-technical. It's like, no, that's two different things. Like Just because I don't know an extensive amount of code doesn't mean that I am not a technical person or I don't understand technology. And it's predominantly because testers are predominantly women and we're often in a, in a predominantly male environment, it, I think the term is used as a gatekeeping term. Like, well, you're not technical enough to understand this, or you're not technical enough to do this, or you're not technical enough to write this code. When all it would be a matter of is like, hey, you don't know this, let me teach you. And oftentimes, if I was named, if I was given a different name, title, whatever, and come in, that would have been the instance. Oh, you're, you're just, you just don't know this. Okay, let's go learn it. It would never be like, oh, you're non-technical, so I'm not going to give you a chance to do this kind of thing. So the fact that testers have gotten pigeonholed in this weird non-technical craziness, it drives me nuts. I've had conversations with different businesses over the years. I had one manager tell me, well, if they really wanted to be technical, they would have gone and done that themselves. And I'm like, well, if you're not encouraging your people to actually improve themselves, then you're perpetuating the problem. To me, that was like the worst offense as a manager you could possibly do. And then I've been in these conversations where I have advocated for myself. I was in a position as a tester 
and it was mostly manual testing, but I was learning automation and I was learning SQL. I came in a year later and had a conversation with a dev director. She was just like, we're really glad to have you. I'm like, hey, if you were really glad, you'd give me a raise because I am the most technical person on your staff right now, which was true. And it wasn't from saying the other person wasn't technical because they were. They knew their job. They knew how to do their job. But I had learned additional skill sets to make me more valuable, that I was testing things on the back end with those skill sets. And I got a 25% raise because I pushed the issue. But I had to push it. Like I didn't automatically, is like, oh, hey, you've done this really awesome work, Melissa, let's give you a raise. I actually had to bring up the fact that I had learned all of these skills to be able to do my job better. There's a spectrum of technical. So when I talk about, and then people are like, well, they, yeah, of course there's non-technical because there's people over here that don't know X, Y, and Z. Well, that's fine. But you know, give them a chance to learn it and they can be better technically skilled, but that doesn't mean they're not technical. So to me, it's like two different things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. I work in like a software agency and we literally just had a workshop internally about a week and a half ago where the conversation was, we air quoted non-technical people explaining technical problems to non-technical people air quoting technical people, because we hadn't yet figured out a good phrasing for, and I think in that scenario, we were talking about like, we're working with our clients because we maintain software for other companies. And so we'll be working with like someone that works in a marketing department that just happens to use a piece of software that was written. And so they're the end of users and they, they don't understand necessarily under the weeds about how the the software works and there's like, I don't know, I clicked a button, this thing's broken. Why isn't this thing working? We were trying to figure out a better way of phrasing that. We're like, well, they just don't know that yet. They may or may not ever learn or have a desire to learn it. You know, some of them don't give a shit about what happens. Under, I don't know. The button didn't do what it's supposed to do. Fix it. So we're like, well, what would be a better phrasing for that? And we didn't, we haven't yet come up with good phrasing for that yet. I'm really trying to emphasize, like work with the team on like, let's get away from using that as a phrase because it's just not productive in that context either. But I think you were right when saying it's bullshit that if a tester is being called non-technical, that's just, if you're working within the technology stacks and doing that, I mean, that is very technical. So they're your customers, they're your clients, your customers, your users. I think those are all three really good words to use with folks that you're working with the software on. And I don't know why people feel like they have to like give them some sort of weird, oh, they don't know, like, okay, they don't know about the software, but that's what you're there for is to help them learn. So they are your customer. I think customer is a way better descriptor than non-technical user or something. So it's like user qualifies them, customer, client. Those are, those are all words that I think are much better descriptors of how those people fit in the workflow of the software that you're building. You know, even with Unity, Unity is a very, very complex ecosystem, but it is designed for people to be able to come in and start fiddling with it. Do any of those folks know coding right off the bat? I doubt it. Some of them, in some cases, yes, but a lot of people that are independent, game shops, whatever, don't necessarily start with code. They start with images and pictures and animations. And we actually work with a design shop. They're called no code, like literally because they don't use code. Everything is obfuscated, like the code that they need. I think they recently hired a dev, if I understand correctly, but they've been operating for years without a true developer because they've been using Unity so extensively. And Unity does a lot of the hard, heavy lifting for people. But if somebody's using Unity, I would challenge anybody to come in and say they're not technical 
because you have to have a certain amount of technical knowledge to be able to get the thing to work. My onboarding, it took me four months to make a little cube that fell onto <laughs> to a platform. And like, I know my, my next thing is like, that cube's going to hit the platform and then spawn a bunch of other cubes. Like, I know where I want to go with it. I know Unity can help me do that. And I know I could look things up to help me do that. But when it takes you a certain amount of time, you know, learning curve to get like things to work and to understand how they work, that's all technical knowledge. That's really technical stuff, especially when you're using technology to do that, regardless of whether you know code or not. If you want to call me a non-coder, okay, cool, fine, that's fine. Not true, but that's fine. I mean, I'll put up with it because I don't code on a daily basis. I'm not writing code every day. I'm writing code like once a week if I'm lucky. And even then, it's kind of like a little fiddly bits and it's not really like a whole application of things testers like calling me non-technical that's that's a good way to get on my bad side pretty quick (laughs) we'll be back with my interview with melissa in just a moment hi it's me robbie i wanted to thank you for listening to the maintainable software podcast if you're finding conversations like this valuable please consider sharing it amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. You might also even just consider leaving a sticky note on your coworker's desk saying, yo, check out Maintainable. Come on, I'll wait for you to do that. Also, if you have a good story or two to share about ways to improve the long-term maintainability of software and might be interested in being a guest, we should chat. Please get in touch with me at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now back to our interview with Melissa Eden. Do you, and this is just something I, I've kind of ruminated on a little bit, I've I've actually struggled a little, a little bit with the usage of just the phrase, I work in tech, as like a general concept, because I'm like, when do plumbers not work in tech? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm just like, do we not all work in some sort of, like most, are there many jobs that don't involve some sort of technology? So it, I've struggled with it a little bit, not being like, well, it feels like it's, in a way itself, like another maybe form of gatekeeping or some sort of class type of structure. And like, there's people that understand technology. It's like, well, maybe doctors would fit under there. I don't know. But it's just like, where who is and isn't part of the tech world? But it's, a, it's an interesting way to describe, like, almost everything is powered or involves some sort of technology. So it just feels like a really weird phrasing in the first place. Yeah. I like to use the example of like, you know, hey, I used to take my car to a mechanic and now I take my car to an automotive specialist and he plugs it into a bunch of computers. Those two things are not any different because he's using computers because cars are more sophisticated. He still has to know the inner workings a mechanic has to know just because they're called different names. I mean, they do completely different things maybe now because the cars are so sophisticated, but it doesn't mean that they don't equal the same thing. They don't have the same knowledge. They don't have like the, a lot of times they have more knowledge because now they have to use computers to diagnose the problem and then fix it mechanically. So it's like, it's interesting to me how those misnomers and sort of naming conventions get started and why. Like I I suspect a lot of things, I have theories, but they're all kind of half-baked. So I'm not going to jump into them. But yeah, usually if somebody asks me about my job, I say, oh, I'm a, I'm a software tester. And they're like, oh, wow. So you like test the stuff that people build? I'm like, yeah, for the most part. I mean, that's a very base level <laughs> of what I do. But I think a lot of people that don't work in software development on a day-to-day basis, and that seems like 
the other 50% of the world, like half the world is working in software development, the other half is working like as doctors, lawyers and everybody else, you know, it's a weird paradigm. I think you're right. It's like tech is like too broad of a term because there's tech everywhere. It's so ubiquitous in everything these days. I just, yeah, I just keep wondering if it'll ever get away from that somehow, but I'm like, I don't know why we need to distinguish ourselves with, there's only going to be more technology in the future. So maybe we find some new ways to describe the fact that you work in that industry and I work in like software development as a different type of industry, but we all kind of classify ourselves as being part of the same industry, but yet we have completely different, like the healthcare tech and like, well, they're in healthcare and like, why do we have to throw in like the extra label of technology as like a, a way to distinguish it somehow. So I don't know. It's just a weird, or like we're all part of the same club. So I can just switch between healthcare or finance or something. I don't think it's that simple. So no, I agree. And I actually encourage a lot of people to say they work in a domain versus they work in like technology. All the domains have technology. Like I don't, I think you would be hard pressed to name a domain field, whatever that's out there now and say that they don't use technology. I can't even think of one. And I'm like, if you want agriculture, nope, that's all automated. Biology, nope. You're using a crap ton of tools and equipment to study that stuff, and that's all technology. Marine biology, oceanography, meteorology, satellites, and charting, and mathematics. People are using technology in literally every domain you could possibly think of. I don't know. I don't know one that's like maybe calligraphy. Maybe I don't feel like it. That's a domain. I and probably even then, people are like using machines to replicate calligraphy. So, so I, I really do think if we start talking about, oh, I work in the gaming industry, or I work in the healthcare industry, or I work in the, if we start talking about industries, then we have common ground. And it doesn't matter whether I'm developing software, or I'm writing a game, or I'm developing hardware that that game's going to play on. We all suddenly have like a common ground of like, oh, we're in the gaming industry. So what's your focus? What, you know, and then we could talk about the differences, but then you all sort of level the playing field that way. It's not an us versus them. It's like we're all in it together, which I like much better. I'm much more a collaborative person. So, Yeah, it's one of those things I ruminate on. And, and like, when did that start? Because I feel like it probably... Probably in the 80s, you know, it's like the dueling OSs and little Lennox over here being like a question mark, you know? So that's the other thing too, is that we're still kind of, we're in that sort of emphasis slash like, in the process of time and the development of technology in the last, what, 50, 60, 70 years, that's a blink of an eye, you know, and, and not even that. It's like even less than a blink of an eye. So we're, we're still like technology is sort of in its infancy and it's like proliferating into everything. So I, th- I think we're going to have better, hopefully, like maybe in another 100 years, we'll have we won't even have it. It won't even be like we won't even talk about it like tech. It'll just be a thing we do. Switching gears a little bit back over to maintainable software in particular. So you're working with teams. What sort of advice would you give a team that hasn't established a a good testing process as of yet? Maybe they don't have any automated testing. They've got handfuls of like types of regression problems that keeps popping up and they've some of the original developers aren't there anymore. And so people are coming in and they're like trying to make sense of what's going on. And they're like, okay, we need to stabilize the situation because we're not going to rewrite it anytime soon because there's enough value in the product we've already developed, but we need to feel more confident that we're not going to like 
break stuff going forward as often as we have been. What sort of advice might you offer them on how to prioritize certain areas of the application or types of testing they should start implementing and how they should even start some of those conversations amongst themselves? Definitely starts with process. It definitely starts with talking about it, right? Because if you don't talk about it, you're never going to get it fixed. If you've got a process in place of how you're handling stories, just fold that tech debt in and just really be conscientious about knocking it out software has a shelf life. And if you're having to work with it for a certain period of time, it's going to have these problems. That's just the nature of how things move and grow and develop. New technologies come out and replace the old technologies and people have to catch up and that's how it works. But if I was in that situation, personally, my first thing would be like, okay, what's the low hanging fruit? What could we actually put unit tests on and stabilize out? What what could we actually, what's really easy to test or rarely repetitive to test that we could automate fairly quickly? And then we do that. And then once that was done, we'd talk about like what the next goals are. Like just start laying out like a, a priority of goals and then seeing if you can tackle them via Sprint, Kanban, whatever process you're using, Waterfall even. I mean, I'm not my particular favorite to work in Waterfall, but hey, I'm not going to judge people that are using things to get stuff done. Like the whole point is to get stuff done. So whatever process you're using, get the tech debt looped into that process and understand where that tech debt fits in and what it's going to fix and what value putting testing in place for that particular software is going to bring back. So it'd be kind of ridiculous. For instance, if I came in, you know, if I came into a situation and somebody said, oh, hey, this regression keeps happening, but we're going to sunset this in three months, then there's no point in me writing a bunch of automation or doing a bunch of testing, except for maybe around that one thing that's crucial to make sure it's still working. Like if I have to press two or three buttons and oh, good, we know it works. And I know it's going to be replaced by something else in a couple months. I'm not going to spend a bunch of my time trying to automate something that's going away. Same thing with something that's brand new. Spending a bunch of time trying to automate something that's constantly in flux makes no sense. So pick the things that make sense to test quickly and at a certain level, like I would be like, okay, code is changing quickly. So a lot more unit tests, maybe a couple integration tests, very few. If there's a UI, if it's a service, that's not a big deal. But if it's like if there's a UI, I'm not going to test, like write a bunch of UI tests for a UI that's constantly in flux. It makes no sense. I might write one just to make sure that everything's standing up. Like, hey, I'm going to make sure that this is standing up and I can log in just so I know. And then that way we know functionally the whole thing is working. And that I could put in a CI and that's really fast feedback. So the whole point is to get faster feedback loops. So if the tech debt serves that purpose, do it and then get that in the process and make it visible. Make it visible Make sure it's bringing some sort of value. Otherwise, I think people get into this thing of like, oh, we have to go do and solve all these problems and do all these things. And it's like, well, why do you need to do it? What value are you going to get out of it? And how long are you going to get that value for what you're going to put into it? So it's going to take me three or four months to build up a, like a, a repository of tests to test this particular feature to make sure that it doesn't regress. My hope is, is that that three or four months just of my time put in there actually gives like two or three years of functional testing safety. Hey, I know that works because those tests pass. Even then, I would go back and review those tests and make sure that those are still the tests we need. Like that review process of like, hey, I have all these tests. Are we still testing the right things? Like make sure you're reviewing them on a regular basis because things change all the time. And if you're running a test that's like failing or if you've shut off a bunch of tests because they're failing, then why are you still running them? 
What's the point? Like they're just sitting in there bloating up your, your CI or your code or wherever they're living. So it's like, you might as well just get rid of them. Right. So I think people hang on to things longer than they need to, or they don't want to get rid of it because that is a piece of knowledge. It's like, Oh, if I get rid of it, then I don't know what that was. And it's like, you don't know what it is anyway. So just either fix it or move on. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting. I think there, I know at least in, you know, in the coding side of things, we often talk about code coverage when it comes to test coverage and how much of the code is tested and like has repeatable automated testing. I think there's not enough conversation sometimes about how over time we're slowing the feedback cycle down too. And so there's like a, there's a weird trade-off there where, you know, we, we work with some clients or talk with companies and they're like, well, it takes, you know, an hour and a half for a whole test suite to run or several hours in some cases. I'm like, well, is that because you're using parallelization or anything to do that like faster? And like, oh, we're doing that. And like, and it's still 90 minutes. I'm like, Oh boy. Like, how do you, that's just like, there's a bunch of other issues that start to come up. So I think that slows down velocity and that feedback cycle. So I think that's, it's a fine line there. And I think it's probably hard for people to delete tests. It's an interesting thing to at least reflect on. It's better than probably no tests, but it is, it becomes a different problem on the other end of it too. I think it was one of the best things I learned on a project I was working on. We were doing a React project and I did not write the framework, but somebody set up the framework to do the front end tests in JavaScript. And so I was learning kind of rudimentary JavaScript to build out some tests and write them and things like that. I worked on that project for three months and I learned eh, maybe a thimbleful of how JavaScript works. That was important to me. However, the important thing I learned was from my tech lead. She came through one day and just deleted a bunch of tests. And I was like, oh my God, why did you do that? I think, why, and not talk to me about it. It's like everybody owned that project. It was perfectly fine. But I think it was the first time I experienced somebody like going in and like deleting a bunch of stuff. Like it didn't make sense to me. She's, she was like, well, it's actually covered here. We did this in a bunch of unit tests. You don't need to do it at the UI level. And I was like, I had to think about that. I had to sit and think about it because it was like, it's the UI. It's different than the service. And it's, no, it's not. What am I actually testing and where? Do I need to test that at UI level? What functionality am I actually trying to test? The logic? Well, if it's the logic, it should be tested in the service. It shouldn't be tested at the client level. So I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Like testing APIs. If I'm testing communication and delivery of data and transformation and stuff, I don't want to test that through the UI. The UI might be triggering it, but I don't need a UI to test that. So thinking about where you're testing at what level and why was like a huge eye opener for me. And then I went in and I went, okay. So then I looked at the whole test suite and I deleted a bunch more. And I got down to like 10 UI tests out of like 30 that we originally had. And then I said, okay, I agree with you, but we do have this one gap where we don't know if the service is actually communicating with the UI. And so we need some test that actually shows that the UI is actually doing this trigger. And she was like, okay, fine. So I put that back in. And so I had one test, not five, covering this particular trigger, right? So really thinking about what we're testing and where the gaps are. And I think that's probably the hardest thing for anybody to really see like developers testers it doesn't matter finding the gaps and like plugging them with some sort of coverage you know wherever that coverage is and at the right level that's the important part like writing 300 400 ui tests that test everything from top to bottom what is that really giving you because then if something fails that's not the ui then you're having to like troubleshoot all the way down to the bottom of the stack when if i had run tests at a particular level say like the api or at the code level it could have caught that error immediately 
before it ever hit the UI, any of the UI tests. So to me, I think that's another important thing for teams to really think about when they're applying testing is like, what level, what value, how long do I have to maintain this? All of those things, I think that's why a lot of people call it the testing mindset is because you have to think about all of those things. And not everybody's good at that. And I'm not even good at that all the time. Like I I actually struggle, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's like, okay, where is the right place to put this, right? Or it doesn't even require me to put anything anywhere. And the other thing is, is like, if I look at something and I know for a fact that I can manually test it in five minutes or less, then why would I automate that? Would automation take longer or would it take less time? What's the complexity of the thing that I'm trying to test that would it make it easier or would it make it harder to maintain the test than to just go test it? So I think people fall into that trap a lot too. Yeah, I think you make a great point. And I think that'd be very valuable for not only testers that are listening, but for software developers. Thinking about how, where should you be testing that? What layer? And it's not always like a super obvious answer. And there's probably trade-offs in both sides of that. What is one of the lessons you learned early on in your career that you find yourself reflecting on most often as like, I'm so glad that that was something that I encountered back then? Well, and actually, I don't know. I think one of the things that I reflect on quite a bit nowadays It wasn't early in my career. I wish I had learned it early. I think I got hints of it earlier. And I was like, huh, that's curious, was understanding how to communicate with people, understanding how to communicate in a way that people would understand me and in a way that is not like abrasive or like combative. Because in the beginning of my career, I actually wrote a whole blog post about this based on Green Arrow and how that show's arc where the guy just comes in and just is like shooting everybody dead. And then towards the end, he's got like a whole team and he's like not killing people and trying to save them in a way like or or redeem them somehow. I feel like my career as a QA has sort of followed that same arc less violently, though. Very much in the beginning, I was just very much like, oh, you have failed this software, you know, kind of thing. And one of the things that I was taught in a couple of different lessons and what really hit me when I worked with ThoughtWorks, the book called Crucial Conversations, hugely important to me in the fact that it really opened my eyes to the kind of communication that I was putting out in the world. The fact that some people do not respond well to people waving hands. Like, and I'm, I'm a big hand waver. It's like, oh, hey, okay. So then I have to figure that out. The fact that I'm very passionate and sometimes that comes across as almost a violence to some people in other cultures. So having that understanding, I mean, I'm still working at it. This is an ongoing thing I'll be working at for the rest of my life, but I think I've gotten better. I hope I've gotten better at understanding and reading the room and trying to understand the person I'm communicating with and seeing if there's a way to bridge that gap in a way that makes them comfortable and me comfortable as well so that I'm not pushing a viewpoint or being violent about my communication or violent in a way of like aggressive controlling conversation or just being very cutting people off or dismissing people. I think in the beginning, I, I thought I had to be like a crusader for quality what I found out is that I much more rather be a collaborative team member for quality than some lone wolf going off and like trying to do everything myself. Because it, A, it's not mentally healthy at all. And B, it doesn't get you anywhere with a lot of people because it's all a team effort. And if you're like running off doing it by yourself, you're not bringing the team with you. So that's kind of lessons I've learned over time. 
or learn them early on, but I continue to learn them, I think. As you said earlier, it's never a one-person job. So where can people learn more about you online? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm also hanging out with my blog sometimes, testing and movies and stuff com. I'm also a writer editor with ministryoftesting.com. You can check out a lot of things we do there. I've actually spoken at a couple of test bashes and conferences. So those videos are also available at ministryoftesting.com. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Melissa. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Oh, 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 oh.